Do you know the risk factors for type 2 diabetes? Or what makes it more likely you or someone in your life might have the disease? With type 2 diabetes playing a growing role in the lives of so many, you need to know. And Project Power, a community program from the American Diabetes Association, is here to help. Take our risk test today at diabetes.org slash Project Power. You can avoid the risk of type 2. Project Power will help. Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that American Family Insurance wants to protect your dreams. So whether you're at home singing in the shower, every note, or prefer singing your heart out in the car like Drew, cruising, you can save up to 23% when you bundle your home and auto insurance with American Family Insurance. Get a quote or find an agent at amfam.com. Insure carefully, dream fearlessly. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Ready for the interview, and if you get a cue live on a laptop, watch what I'm gonna do. Welcome to the show, let them know we got a point of view. Hey, yo, let's have a combo. Say what you feel, be real, that's the motto. Real talk, pronto, Dr. D, PhD, hit the intro. Hold up, wait, gotta be social, network, global, a home for the local. Gotta be social, network, global, a home for the local. Well, back again, like 400 somethings time back again on this thing, this time with Amy Bantham. Amy, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Dr. T? I'm good. And you know, you just told me something very interesting uh, off air was that you just taught a class for the first time in two years. What was that like? It was great to be back and to see my students and to catch up with them and to be reminded that being a group exercise instructor is a really important part of who I am. That's interesting. So what about that job makes you is a big part of who you let's describe a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I kind of fell into teaching group exercise. I was working at a law firm in the 90s. <laughs> I'm, da- I'm dating myself a bit. And we would all trot down to the basement gym during lunch. And they had a outside group exercise instructor come in and she taught a class in this studio. And one day she pulled me aside and said, Amy, I think that you could be good at this. Is this something that you'd be interested in, in exploring? And so I trained and got certified and have been doing it ever since. And I really, it's, it's how I got introduced to the health and fitness industry. And I've been part of it in many different capacities ever since and and not just working in the clubs teaching and working as a personal trainer and now i'm a licensed health coach but also working for the health and fitness trade association working on policy and and so it was really the door opener for me to the industry i'd also say it's it's definitely something that has been important to me as becoming more comfortable getting up and performing in front of a group and seeing myself as a leader and so that that really started me on the early stages 
So tell me a little, I have a question about the policy stuff. I think that's an interesting topic to get into, but before we do that, how do you feel group exercise has changed throughout since you started to now? Let's put away the two years part for, for right now. I know we can't forget it, but you know, let's barring that, how has it changed in your mind? Well, what we wear is much different. Okay, true. First off. <laughs> Absolutely. How has it changed? You know, it's interesting because what I teach is very similar to what I taught 20 years ago. So in some sense, it shows the lasting nature of certain types of group exercise. Like I teach step aerobics, which is old school, but there's still a lot of demand for it. And I teach floor aerobics through the, the Jane Fonda. <laughs> and I teach the strength training. And one thing that has changed for the better, I would say, is that early on we had, you know, the little dinky weights that women would <laughs> use and, and the fear of using bigger weights and bulking up and that fear. I don't see that. I see women recognizing and I teach in an all women's club. So I see women recognizing the importance of strength training and conditioning as an important part of healthy aging. And so that I think has changed for the better. Yeah, it seems like that's certainly been turned around quite a bit. Have you, I know you teach at a women's club, but do you, do you feel that group exercise participation? What, what are the demographics in general that you've seen throughout your time? Is it more uh, men, women? What's the ratio that you've seen? And has that changed over time? Yeah, I've been teaching at an all women's club for a while now. So I'm going to go back in time to re remember when I was teaching at a co-ed club, I did have a core group of men who would come to my classes, but percentage-wise, they're still a very, very, very small percentage of what I taught. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's what I've seen too throughout the years yeah. and, and formerly teaching group X for a while, definitely. Um, seems like that. So let's let's transition to you mentioned about health trade association and policy. How important has understanding current policy in health and wellness and seeing where it might go? How important has that become to you over time? Oh, it's critically important, and I think it's critically important for the industry. Yeah, I started working with URSA in two thousand six. And when I started with them, I was there focused on state government relations. And over time, I did more and more on health policy and health promotion and doing more with their foundation. And that's eventually what led me to go back to school and get my doctor of public health. But I think the pandemic has shown us, us as an industry, how important advocacy is to our livelihood. When I was doing advocacy in 2006, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, it was really hard to get people to prioritize advocacy. Talk a little bit about that. Let's define that so the audience knows. Some people I think are gonna be like advocacy for like, 
let's go deeper. What does that mean? Let's define it a little bit more. Yeah, like essentially standing up for your business. Like I spent, clubs were interested in it when like the state was trying to tax health club dues at like 6%, 7% and that hits the bottom line. So then they would pay attention to it. But a lot of what was really interesting to me was focusing on advocacy that would help that would further health promotion that would help to pass legislation that would have more physical education in schools so you're instilling healthy habits in kids so they grow up to be active adults and trying to get financial incentives, tax credits for people who took the time and the care to join a health club and work with a personal trainer and work with a registered dietitian and and so trying to get financial incentives. So those were the types of things that we would work on. And I think that the pandemic showed that if you're not standing up for your business, then your business may not be in business. Mm. Yes. So what is the, you know, you're talking the language of policy legislation, which uh, is very, uh, it's a slippery slope with a lot of people because there's almost this feeling of gridlock. How do we get things done? What's been the biggest challenge in advocacy and and trying to get legislation passed for health and wellness policies? Yeah, so the I know the industry is still trying to get the Personal Health Investment Today Act passed, which is something I worked on in mm-hmm. 2006, <laughs> seven, eight, those years. So that I mean, the clock's ticking here. I mean, what's going? <laughs> yeah, that that has not changed, and that would really allow people to use their health savings accounts, flexible spending accounts, on prevention essentially, instead of treating disease, managing disease on prevention, and specifically on sporting goods equipment, on health club memberships, and allowing that to be used out of, like we can use our health savings account and flexible, well, our flexible spending accounts for things that are not prevention, and what a wonderful thing to be able to, to use those accounts for prevention. I think the pandemic has really shown us the importance of preventing disease, chronic disease, because it's a risk factor for infectious disease, but not only because of that, right. for, for many, many other reasons. So what's the, what's the, maybe this is a dumb question, but what's the holdup? Like what's, why is this taking so long to pass something like this? Yeah, I mean, to me, the biggest problem with trying to get prevention legislation passed and and maybe trying to help frame prevention for our entire healthcare system and our society is that it's seen as a cost, Mm. whereas really it's an investment now, which reaps rewards over time. And so we have this immediate gratification (laughs) society, right? (laughs) So we're looking at like immediate, well, it costs something upfront and 
when you're looking, you ha we have to frame it as the return on investment is extraordinary. Yes, there's an investment now, but when you're looking at the impact that it has on healthcare costs and savings over time, this is not a cost. This is a savings. This is an investment. How do we change this messaging of prevention versus kind of reaction? It feels like we've been kind of circling this wagon a lot throughout the years. Yeah, we have. And How I've do been, we change this? Yeah, I've been beating the drum on prevention for a long time, and it sometimes yeah. feels lonely. And, and look at how we've handled the pandemic. We're so reactive. You know, we're constantly respond to this, respond to this. And I'm really optimistic that we're starting to talk more about the intersection of infectious and chronic disease. Mm. And I talk about it a lot because we're seeing that physical inactivity is a risk factor for COVID. And we are seeing and, and I talk about this a lot because it is so, it's such a wake up call. There was a study that was done looking at long COVID and with really long COVID manifests itself with really significant impacts on cognition, brain health, cardiovascular health. And one study, the lead author of it said that the implications of long COVID for cardiovascular health outcomes is so great that a clinician asking about whether someone has had COVID previously may become more important than asking a patient if they have a history of obesity mm. or a history of smoking. Wow. And so that is a wake up call in, in the sense that we really need to be thinking about chronic disease long into the future as fallout from the pandemic. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that this will start to shift the thinking around, you know, we can't, we can't be pivoting and reacting and, and when COVID is over, if COVID is ever over, <laughs> that, that we're just thinking about the next infectious disease to pop up. We really, really need to be thinking about prevention. It was interesting. I had a very good, this was like a, I know he wouldn't care if I talked about this. This is a lot about of a larger conversation. I was talking to Dr. Cedric Bryant uh, with ACE about this and just not on my podcast, just, you know, with colleagues and stuff. And I'm like, I just heard, saw about the physical inactivity risk factor. I said, I said, I don't know. I said, I, I think it's a good thing. I said, but I just think we have a messaging problem going on here. Like we just talk and talk and talk. And, but what's the actual, what's the inflection point that will actually create a change? I'm like, I'm trying to understand this. I'm trying to talk to as many people as possible. And he had mentioned the same thing about like public health and infectious disease. And I'm like, I understand that. I just like, I feel like I'm always in committee meetings where we just talk about stuff. I'm like, I don't know like what's actually happening, you know? And I feel like I get frustrated by that because 
I'm sure like you get frustrated. You're like, I know how good this is. Like, why do we need to tell people this? Like, what's, what is the disconnect that we're experiencing? We have COVID and all this, but it's still, often people don't change their lifestyle. We know that lifestyle has a gigantic amount of these health outcomes. What's the disconnect that we're experiencing? Yeah, I appreciate your comment about there being a lot of talk and what feels like too little action. I'm also concerned, you know, having worked on physical activity for so many years and and going back to get my doctor of public health because Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to talk the same language as the people who I think need to be allies in this journey so I can talk to medical professionals and I did a lot of research around getting healthcare providers to talk to their patients about the importance of physical activity to their lives. So yes, there's a lot of talk. We need certainly need more action. It's been frustrating. I'm sure you feel it. Mm-hmm. Working in physical activity, it feels like we're often the ugly stepchild of, <laughs> of, of behavioral modifications because so much attention is focused on obesity yeah. and nutrition without equal attention focused on physical activity. Yeah, I just feel like I'm at this critical point where I'm like, all right, I want to, I want to talk. I like to talk. I enjoy it. I don't want to downplay talking, but I'm like, is like, if you look, if you're watching something, most drug, most commercials are like drug commercials. They're like Trulicity or Otesla. And it's all this stuff. Where's the commercials about the other side of the equation for that? It feels like it's, it's so heavily funded by pharmaceutical companies. Like you got a problem, take a drug. And, and may, we know through a lot of research that a lot of lifestyle changes actually are better than the drugs. But they're not telling you that. They're not telling you that. Well, well, that's it, right? I mean, when we look at exercise as medicine, do we really want to equate it to something that is, we don't really want to be taking at all? Like right. activity and, and movement means that you don't have to take medicine why is it medicine it's the messaging part (laughs) we do we have we absolutely we we have a messaging problem we have a messenger problem Mm. and and i focus a lot on this i just wrote a piece on this is the importance of healthcare providers as trusted messengers to be talking with their patients about physical activity. They are the most trusted source of physical activity intervention, uh, of physical activity information, but not enough of them are talking with their patients about physical activity. And I'm not gonna throw it on healthcare providers. I think exercise as medicine is really trying to get healthcare providers to do more. It's not a messaging campaign for the broader population for the reasons that we just talked about. You know, you exercise is a pill that tastes bad and (laughs) you really wanna be, no, it's it's about movement as, as, and, and that's why a lot of my recent research 
has focused on the health, the mental health benefits of physical activity, the immediate impact on stress and mood and anxiety. And so I've, I've been looking at that with, with adults. And I've also been looking at it in kids because we have a real mental health crisis with kids and adults and, and looking at ways that in school physical activity can start to address some of the challenges that schools are facing. So in terms of action, like let's, let's do more. I think that we need to do more with kids yeah. to instill these healthy habits. And we need to frame it not as being solely about physical health. Yeah. We've got to frame it as being about whole person health, which takes into account the physical, yes, the mental, the social and emotional. We know that physical activity is way better than medicine. So yeah. we, we need to start showing the path forward. So there is more of a path forward to your point about let's stop talking and start doing. It feels like we've gone backwards in some way. Like I remember in school growing up, like physical education was really important. It was like, you had it all the time and I'm dating myself, but like, and then it feels like as we've gone along society, we've made this gigantic emphasis on STEM. And we've basically tried to kill physical education, art, music, all these things. Like those don't make society better. I just... And I think the school system is a whole nother thing. It's just kind of slow, very archaic system that doesn't cater to like how actually people will be living, living. Like, you know, it's like, I mean, I took cooking when I was in high school. I took international foods, gourmet foods. And like, it's like we've tried to get, take away all these things that make people whole humans. And then we say, let's focus on STEM, which like 7% of the population goes into. And it's like, this is crazy to me. Like, it's like we're doing backward stuff all the time. I don't understand that. Yeah, and I think it's really similar. I think it's a similar problem to what we've been talking about with prevention and why yeah. bills like the FIT Act aren't passed because we're thinking about the immediate, the here, the now, and we need to reframe physical activity as an investment right. now, which will reap rewards in the short, medium and long-term. And to your point about, yeah, we're doing, we're getting rid of PE and recess and all these things that help kids to regulate their emotions and to be able to focus in yeah. class, right? We we get rid of all the things that will help kids focus so they can <laughs> do better. And we do it in the name of freeing up time so that they can <laughs> do test prep. But it's the one thing, perhaps the best thing that will help them do well on those tests. It's crazy. My daughter's 10 and I'm like, why is there so much math? Like, there's just always about math and the reading I get, you read all the time, but like, I don't know, like somebody sent me this meme. It was like, 
I'm so glad that I learned about parallelograms because uh, it's something like I'm messing up, like it's coming great in my parallelogram job that I'm doing right now. <laughs> it's like, you know. And I think we can reframe. It's just reframing it. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I like the investment. It's like, if you tell somebody about stocks and trading and stuff, they get excited. Oh, I'm going to make this investment and I'll get a, this return. I'll make more money. We look at fitness like it's just evil. Like, oh, it's just, just I got to take time for this. You know, it's like, you don't see, they don't see the goodness in it, you know? Yeah, it's like, it's it's a detractor, whereas we need to frame it as a value add. And yeah. we need to think about what the value add is for, for our different audiences and for schools, it's a value add because we have cal calmer kids who can regulate their emotions, who can take, they've done the time of, of being active. And so now they can come back and focus. And so incorporating movement into the classroom, incorporating movement into recess and bringing back PE instead of, you know, having it for a couple minutes a week. It's crazy, actually. <laughs> a couple minutes a week. The other thing is, how do you? <laughs> that, that's an that's an exaggeration. No, I know, but you know, it's a symptom of kind of a larger thing, you know, uh, with it. How do you? How do you square technology in this whole thing? I mean, we're using technology right now, and it's it's amazing. We can do this, have these remote conversations. But how how is that going to affect policy in the future when? Technology is progressing in such a fast way, and it's clearly uh, affecting us mentally, physically, emotionally. When we're we're making society almost easier for people in many ways, the Uberization of life. How does that square with the policies that maybe you're working on? Yeah, I mean, I let's bring it back to ourselves and our own pros and cons of technology during the pandemic, I used to be an active commuter. And I used to walk and ride my bike and take the subway to school every day. And in the early days of the pandemic, through about midway, I would literally sit at my desk all day, every day at in back-to-back -back Zoom meetings, I wouldn't even be able to get up for a minute. So there are wonderful pros, but there are also cons when we think about physical activity and we think about how we as a society are getting even more sedentary. It's crazy. If that's, if, that's, <laughs> if that's possible. And we saw how it impacted our kids being remote, being on screens all day. My kids had eye issues, headache issues. I saw what Zoom gym looked like, not very active at <laughs> all. So, so we see it right on a household level and on a community level. And then what are, what are the broader implications specifically as it relates to physical activity? I think, you know, I just talked about the cons. I think they're wonderful pros for the health and fitness industry. And I know that you experienced yeah, this yourself sure. with the with the way you're able to interface with clients yep. using using technology. And I, I see health and fitness clubs that have been able to pivot and become 
less about within the four walls of their club and be able to do hybrid and streaming and bring in people who are outside the four walls of the club. Um, So I think we need to really think through the pros and the cons and how we can bolster the pros and minimize the bad impacts of of the cons. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I feel like there's, like you said, there's a lot of good things, but then it also feels like we're always making apps to make life easier for people. Like how much easier, there's always a trade-off in things, but how much easier can you make things until you're basically taking the activity out of living for yes. most people? Like That's- where's, there's a point where that becomes like, this is just not worth it potentially. I don't know where that is, but it feels like we, humans don't necessarily go backwards in in a sense and go like, you know, we're going to have Uber. We're just going to stop doing Uber. You know, oh, we have DoorDash. You know what? We're done with that. Like, it feels like it's just another, we don't start, we don't go with like VHS and then go to streaming and all this stuff and then go, how about back to VHS? Like, why are we going to go back to rewinding tapes and stuff? Like, it's like, we just keep moving forward. I worry about the constant march of this. And how is this going to affect already terrible numbers in the United States of overweight and obesity and, and chronic disease and stuff, you know? Yeah, I have, I have two streams of thought based on what you're saying. The first is that, you know, we really have engineered physical activity out of our lives. Yes. And we talked about like, why aren't we moving the dial? Well, we're not moving the dial for a number of reasons. We've talked about the wrong messengers, really convoluted messaging and lots of it, your point about lots of talk. And I think that what's really key is engineering physical activity back into our lives because it is so hard Behavior change is so hard. It's we so know hard. this. So hard. <laughs> and and if you engineer everything out, so you have to re-engineer it back <laughs> in, you're you're really setting yourself up for something that's even more difficult. It was much easier for me. You know, now I'm at about what 10, 12,000 steps a day when I was actively commuting to school. I was at 20, 22, 24,000 steps a day. No issue. No issue. And it it's really, and, and yet over the past two years, not teaching, not actively commuting, I've become pretty sedentary. Not, not what I was before when I was a group exercise instructor today, teaching for the first time in two years was very hard for me. Right. Right. I've lost a lot in that, in that sense to your other point about the pros and cons of technology. I'm really curious your perspective. I'd forgotten that you were a a group exercise instructor at one Mm -hmm. point, but I know you train and coach. Yeah it is really hard to keep up with the technology. Like I went in today and I've been teaching so long that I have tapes of music. <laughs> I love that. I have tapes. I love and that. I have, and I have CDs. Yep. And I went and I went in today, no CD player anymore. Yep. So my entire library of music 
is yeah. is defunct. <laughs> I feel like I love technology. Like my my dad, when I was growing up, he always had like the newest VHS recorder, Betamax, everything. So I like in receivers. Like I was like totally into the whole thing, and I I love all the new things that come out. But it's hard being in the and then like it's a big part of my business. You know, I'm virtually with people all the time. I was well before the pandemic, and I see how powerful it can be. But then I see the other side, this real dark side, which is just, you know, where people just stare at their phones all the time. Or, you know, if you go somewhere, everybody's looking down. They're like doing cervical flexion constantly. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it just look, and you're seeing families don't talk to each other at dinner. They're just looking. And it's just like this mountain of this. It's just like, there's always this resistance. Friction is getting bigger and bigger. I just, I don't know how to reconcile that without being like, okay, well, how do you cause this behavior change? And how do you get people back to like, honestly, like more manual labor where ex we're moving and physical activity and exercise, is just part of like almost survival. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't seem like we're going to go back to that unless something catastrophic happens mm -hmm. to the human race. So I, I am, I'm optimistic on some way of like, wow, this gives more people opportunities at work and stuff, but I'm pessimistic in that. How do we stop something that's going quicker than you and I could ever imagine it would ever go like technology? It's like literally sprinting. Like mm -hmm. this is old already. I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because when teens first got phones we would joke about teens walking down the street together shoulder to yeah. shoulder texting each other yeah right yeah and, and that was kind of a joke but really the joke's on all up, all of us because we do that as well to your point about people are always looking down at yeah. some device and and i do think I, I mentioned that i'm doing more and more research on this intersection of physical activity and mental health and i just finished a research project working with the ursa foundation of how we can build the capacity and the ability of us th those of us who are fitness professionals to be able to talk about and and mental health and well-being with our clients and members and and help them address it and and develop programming that targets whole person health including mental health and well-being and you know we, we talked about what comes next after the infectious disease pandemic well we've got a mental health pandemic and yeah. and a big piece of that is connecting people with community and, and social connectedness and technology helps in that it allows us to connect with people who live far away. And I used to do Zoom happy hours early in the yeah. pandemic until yeah. I was doing so many Zoom meetings that the last <laughs> thing I wanted to do at the end of the workday was to have more Zoom calls. Exactly. But there there is value to it. But if we're if if we're isolated even when we're back with people in person then then we have then we have an issue and we need to and we need to address it and we need to show how physical activity and what we do as the health and fitness sector 
not only helps to get people active, but it helps to connect them to other people. Yeah, I, it's a great community, I think, fitness and wellness. The other thing I think, you know, I'm really focusing on this like messenger thing you said, like I, I, I've always said like message, the message, but you really added another big layer of the messenger. And I think it also leads to this whole issue, another issue, which I think is like science communication or communicators. And so you're doing research projects, a lot of wonderful people doing great science work out there, but they're often not, they're often speaking a language that the general population does not care about, can, will not ingest, and it's not re relatable. And often the people doing the research, people look and see, they're not like me. They don't understand my situation. So maybe talk a little bit about the role of science communication, research communication to the general public and how that may need to evolve. Oh, it absolutely needs to evolve. And the pandemic has shown us that. To me, one of my biggest mantras is trust, trust in the messenger, trust in the message and, and building trust. Another big piece of what I do is trying to translate research into practice. And in order to translate research into practice or, or policy, you need to interpret it for a lay audience and you need to be able to communicate it in ways that are relevant to people. Yeah for them to to sit up and take notice and say yeah this actually this speaks to me i understand this i trust the person who is giving me this message yeah. and to your point i keep coming back to this to to be more than all talk and no action in order to help people actually turn research information data whatever into action they need to understand it and see it as relevant to their lives enough that they're they're willing to to take the time to act on it. Yeah, I, I think so too. And maybe this is shallow of me, but uh, I feel like also like who the person is that's providing the information. I think sometimes there's this blinders of like, you know, you're talking to kind of this pop culture society that is very much about expression, individual expression. I mean, look at me. I mean, I look very different. I mean, I'm doing my thing. And like I, th I grew up in a time in my education where a lot of the scientists looked very similar. Same gender, same ethnicity, uh, pocket protector, pins. Like, I feel like we gotta move. I feel like that's good, but we gotta like move. We have to evolve beyond that. Like we need to have like edgier scientists. You know, I feel like. <laughs> People are like, because, you know, people, because people are, people are weird. Like they want to identify with somebody that seems like very different sometimes. So it's like a little more style. I feel like we've stifled scientists to being like sometimes boring people and they're not, but they're sometimes <laughs> afraid to be adventurous because the university or whatever is doing is like poo-pooing that like, no, you have to be this way, you know, like. Mm -hmm. I think society is moving way beyond that. They're like, it's okay if you have pink hair, you know, like put out some good work, you know, <laughs> like, and talk yeah. to me, get around, go around, do podcasts, go to conferences, but be interesting. Don't be boring, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting issue that I've been struggling a, a little bit with trying to think about, 
you know, when do I wear my scientist, doctor of public health hat? Mm -hmm. When do I wear my fitness professional mm -hmm. hat? And thinking about conveying information, I'm, I'm doing a, a series of videos on this mental health study that we just finished. And, and I think in some of them, there's a role for me as I'm a researcher, I'm a doctor right. of public health. And I think there are some, there's a role for me as, hey, I'm one of you, I'm a fitness professional. And this is what we all said was important to us. And this is how we're going to build our knowledge base and our skills and our expertise. So we can help people live healthier, more active lives and, and play a role in that. And yes, trust in the message, trust in the messenger and being able to really wear, wear different hats and not always the same hat. I'd love to see like a hardcore scientist who was like wearing leather chaps and went to Sturgis and was like, <laughs> and went in there and started, I just something about like, there's, there's something I feel like it's just being relatable to certain populations and groups and stuff. I think our science, I think science has a real big communication issue. Yeah. Almost kind of a, like, you need to get out and do this. Like you can't just be doing research and then talking with just your colleagues, like yeah. at a university, you have to like, who is this person? You know, like people want to know who the person is. Like, are they, are they just a, you know, person pushing pencils and stuff? Well, not pencils anymore, but you know, typing on stuff. I'm dating, <laughs> right. I'm dating myself a lot. Here. You know, you know, it's it's interesting. So the way I got into podcasting is because a former classmate of mine who started his own business. He was a chief of staff or a policymaker in Congress for years, and he started his own business and he started his own podcast. And so I chatted with him early on when I'd started my business. And I said, how do I build my credibility? How do I get my name out? How do I connect with people in in ways that where I'm not pitching them for business, but we're, we're actually talking about really relevant, interesting topics. And he said, you need to have a podcast. And interestingly, the focus of his podcast is helping scientists communicate to lay audiences. Yes. And the principles he uses, another, another coincidence, but this is how I know him from graduate school, and he took a persuasion class in graduate school, which I took 20 years later and then subsequently taught for, helped teach for a couple of years. But we focused a lot about what is important to your audience? What is important to you? Where's the sweet spot? That's what you're talking about. What's the messenger? What's the message? And then what's the, space and environment that is supporting you as a messenger and your message. And all those are absolutely critical. And that's what he does as his life's work is helping scientists translate, interpret for a lay audience. So, so they under, so they understand and so they see it as relevant and actionable. Yeah. You know, it was interesting is, um, I love that. I love that person. I just think it's, I think scientists should be on podcasts as much as possible, video and audio, see this person, what they're like. 
But I also think it's interesting, like messenger wise, like I think this guy is great. Like Dr. Lynn Kravitz, I've heard his lectures and he, he does a great job of conveying practical things to personal trainers, but I've talked to him in person, he's a very awkward person. And like he may, he may, he, while he puts out tremendous stuff, he may not be the right messenger mm. for the, but you know, I think we have to start recognizing that. Again, I love the guy. He's great. But we, I think sometimes we put up messengers who maybe that's not true. They should not be the messenger for mm-hmm. that. They could have great messages, but we may need someone that's a little more charismatic. It may be more identifiable to people. That's what I think kind of the messaging messenger. We get caught up like, I have great research, but yeah, but maybe you're not the right person to put your research out to people, the message, you know, mm-hmm. maybe you just don't connect to people. Well, you know, or, or the messenger can change based on who the audience is. Right. Right. And maybe it's good for like collegial conversation, but man, we're just not reaching like the general public, you know, we're not reaching someone in like Oklahoma very mm-hmm. well, or Mississippi, you know, these states that are always the same information, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, all this stuff, something's missing. And I, every time I have these conversations, I'm like, I want somebody to tell me what's missing. <laughs> like, or I want to just, I want to like, be like honest about it. Like what, what have we done wrong as an industry? Like, what have we done wrong that we haven't connected so well, you know? Well, I, I mean, I really, yes, it's the messenger. Yes, it's the message. And, and think about what our message has been as an industry for so long. We're, we're about, you know, hard bodies and abs. Mm. And what we do is not what, you know, you need to get in shape in order to walk in our doors. That's yeah. not... That's not the intentional message, but that's how it's perceived by the audience, right? So people don't, they're not seeing themselves in the solution. We're out there marketing and and peddling a solution that they don't see themselves Hmm. in. So it's not relevant to them. So it's not actionable by them. Actually, that was very powerful. I don't think I've heard that explanation, but it's almost like you're messaging to kind of the elites in a sense. It's almost the one percenters. It's, it's the rich folks of fitness. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exclusive club. Exclusive, yeah. Whereas it needs to be, and, and so much, I just uh, wrapped up a course with my wonderful colleague, Rachel Pajednik, working on really the focus of the course was making health and fitness environments more inclusive and welcoming for people with obesity Mm. and we had 10 experts come on scientists experts come on talking about weight stigma and bias and health benefits of physical activity which are completely distinct and separate from weight loss that's true right and and really thinking about ways to, I don't want to, to entice people, but that makes it feel false, but genuinely make people different types of people, different sizes, people feel welcome in a, in a health and fitness club. I mean, that's a very interesting perspective. Do you think that 
in a health fitness club, then you need to have employees or people working there that represent those different body types. Absolutely. Representation is critical. And I've been doing more talking with people who serve older adults. So health and fitness professionals like me who reach a certain <laughs> age, we would be put out to pasture, right? And right. so actually having older fitness professionals serve and meet the needs of older clients and members. So age, body size, absolutely critical. I, I've had someone on my podcast who talked a lot about representation with communities of color and, yeah, of and having, having instructors who look like me are like of me of course i think i think that is really important for the personnel i think that the images that we use on websites you know we work with clients and say okay this is how you see yourself yeah. as a club is how you see yourself being portrayed on your website mm. i love this I mean, I think this is like, this is like actionable stuff. Like this is like good stuff. I feel like, cause but, you know, I think it's interesting in club environments, you're going to have to overcome this stigma of like, especially in fitness departments of hiring somebody who's a body type that's larger. Okay. Cause then you may have people in there who are going to be very against that idea yep. uh, because of what they've been told mm -hmm. about it. So I, it's just, I love the idea. I'm, I, I'm interested in kind of how the inner, the workings of that, you know? Yeah. yeah, this has come up because when we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the health and fitness industry, we absolutely need to be talking about different body sizes yeah. and representation. And you're absolutely right. This is, but this is not the way we do things. This is not it's, the way we've not, traditionally yeah. done things. <laughs> And if we're thinking about reaching the 80% of people who do not see health and fitness clubs as relevant to their lives or as for them, we need to, we need to address it in a yeah. number of different ways. I totally agree. I think there's, there needs to be a cultural shift in this. And, you know, I think for employers, um, you got to take chances on different people. You, you can't just keep recycling the same type of person, the same looking person, the same old mentality. Um, like I'm on committees. I'm on a committee where like in, in these very big corporations, big clubs, you know, the lifetimes and all that, they can't keep their best trainers anymore because of the technology aspect. They're suffering from that. You have to move off of this old mentality. One, because we're seeing this massive change in, in employer-employee relationships with the employees now feel they have all the leverage. Mm -hmm. Like I have the leverage now. I will quit this job in a heartbeat. <laughs> I will go do something else. By the way, I love that. I love when employees have leverage, especially because it's like we spent so much time as humans in the past being in something that may have been terrible for us, but gutting it out for this future thing that may or not be great, you know? Um, so we have to change because time is changing so quickly these days, you know? Yeah, there's there's been a seismic shift. Seismic. In, 
in, in staffing in the health and fitness industry. And to me, the best results happen where, when there's the greatest disruption. Yes. Yes. And that's, so this is where I have kind of this, for me, a disconnect where I understand going towards policy and legislation, but then I have this terrible disconnect about uh, how things work in that, my, in that state. And whether, you know, congressional hearings and different things, like, I just have this blog, like nothing gets done. Like, I was like, but then we're trying to do stuff through that. I just, I have personally have a personal, like, just fight with that, you know? I'm really hopeful that this increased focus on mental health affords the health and fitness sector a real opportunity to step in and maybe it's a door maybe it's a door right (laughs) maybe okay we'll go through this door (laughs) right and and really position what we do as being better than medicine helping whole person health it it helps you it it helps you with what you're facing 20 30 years down the line and it helps you right now yeah i just you know we've we've kind of had also a conversation about language like you mentioned about medicine exercise medicine i think part of the messaging too we have to like be very careful of the messages the things we say it's like clean eating exercise is medicine you know oh that's karma you know is this like totally misunderstood messaging Mm-hmm. That is so vague. I'm healthy. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's one of the things I'm trying to do with my podcast. When I talk to fitness people, like let's define this so that the general public may hear it go. I never thought about it that way. You know, that health is not just, you know, my food and how I move like it's a huge spectrum, you know? Yeah. I love, I love talking about language because I <laughs> like, I don't, I do not use the word gym. Like mm. health and fitness studio. And anytime I'm asked to review something for, that has gym in it, I take it out. Yeah. Do, do we want to position ourselves as being a bad memory from elementary school? That's true. Like they've rebranded themselves as PE. So why, yeah. are, why are we using gym? We're, if we want to be seen as part of health, we're, we're health and fitness. I also, I don't use exercise and I know you and I've talked a little mm-hmm. bit about this, but I talk about movement and activity yeah. again, trying to make it relatable and actionable for a broader segment of the population. Obviously right. there are important differences between exercise sure. and, and activity, but when you're talking about messaging to a broad audience to make them feel welcome and included, I talk more about movement. Yeah, I, I this is great. I love talking with my colleagues. This is just like, because it feels substantial. And I know when it goes out, there's actual education in there. And also then people see us as very real people. We're conflicted by what's happening in our business. We're just not out there as a face. We're like, we're struggling too with these issues, which I think is important. So thank you, Amy, uh, for coming on and chatting with me. Please tell all the lovely people about your podcast and how they can hear it and anything else about yourself. Oh, thank you so much for hosting me. Yeah, I have a Move to Live More podcast. I bring on thought leaders in three sectors, healthcare, health and fitness, and communities. And those are the sectors that I serve 
as a researcher and a consultant, and those are the sectors that my listeners come from, and the thought leaders that are that I interview are really trying to do innovative things to address physical inactivity and chronic disease. And innovative usually means disruption. It usually means knocking down silos, opening windows, opening doors. And so really trying to push the envelope, come up with out of the box solutions to the things that you and I are struggling with, how to get people moving, happier, healthier, more active, and and to see this type of behavior change as relevant, necessary to them. Wonderful. Amy, thank you so much for your time. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for hosting me. You got it. Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that American Family Insurance wants to protect your dreams. So whether you're at home singing in the shower, every note, or prefer singing your heart out in the car like Drew, cruising, you can save up to 23% when you bundle your home and auto insurance with American Family Insurance. Get a quote or find an agent at amfam.com. Insure carefully, dream fearlessly. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.